0: Difficult to keep the line between the past
1: and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
0: Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a current release. I'm Tosh Robinson, here again with...
1: Keith Phipps. And... Scott Tobias.
0: We've already had a lot to say about John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13 and how heavily it was shaped by exploitation cinema and classic westerns from the 50s and 60s, especially a run of films directed by Howard Hawks and starring John Wayne. Given all those influences, it seems fitting that Precinct 13 influenced a new generation of filmmakers in turn, especially Jeremy Saunier, the writer-director of Murder Party, Blue Ruin, and the new Green Room. Like Precinct 13, Green Room features a group of desperate people cornered by murderers, in this case the members of a punk band on the road, hiding out in the green room of a seedy backwoods bar, and under siege by a group of white supremacists who want to kill them all to cover up a murder. Anton Yelchin and Elias Shawcat star as two of the band members, who, like the Precinct 13 cops and criminals, are outgunned and relying on wits and desperation. Patrick Stewart plays the bar owner and the organizer of the white supremacists, and he's a pretty terrifying figure. He's also a much more present, personal, and specific threat than the silent hordes in Assault on Precinct 13. Gentlemen, I hope you appreciate the situation.
1: Things have gone south, no doubt. Now, whatever you saw or did
0: is no longer my concern. But let's be clear, it won't end well. You're coming. Guys, how did you take Green Room? I hear that uh, Scott may still have fingernail marks from uh, from Keith. <laughs> I, I,
2: yeah, I, I'm I'm a jaded moviegoer, and, and it takes a lot to get me to to jump or or really go ugh in disgust. And I, I was doing that several times. in this film, it's it was it's it's a rough ride. I love I love the movie, but it, it's it it is a. Uh, uh, not for the faint of heart, um, which is part of why Genevieve is not uh, talking <laughs> in this episode <laughs> as one of the faint of heart. But, uh, um, but yeah, it's a
0: self-proclaimed <laughs> faint of heart person. I I think that she probably could have stomached it. There yeah. really are. I mean, we're going to talk about violence uh, very shortly and probably in some detail. Mm-hmm. I believe Scott's uh, usual words are "my beloved, beloved <laughs> violence." Mm-hmm. But there are only a few shots in this film that are really graphic. Mostly it's just the tension.
1: Yeah. I I mean, that's the thing. I think there, that it gives you the, and this is great filmmaking. It gives you the impression of it being much more unpalatable and, and gross than it, than it is. Um, it's got it's its moments, it does have its moments <laughs> in, in, in the moments you know he makes them count That but is that's a
2: carpenter touch too for like, sure. you know when you do see the violence it, it has great impact but but you know it's it's halloween is a movie that you can see and feel like you've seen a lot more explicit violence than you actually have um yeah you can probably the actual moments of explicit violence in this are you can count on 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 one hand what they are and they don't necessarily even last that long but boy do you feel them yeah.
0: And in part, you feel them more because they're so brief. I mean, there's a character who who takes some damage and you literally see it for maybe two seconds. And because you, he doesn't linger on it, it lingers in your imagination. You know, the fact that, that the wounds are so quickly covered up means you're thinking about them for most of the rest of the film.
1: The arm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, just don't, don't put your arm outside a door where people have machetes. <laughs> that's just a good, that's a good uh, rule of thumb. But but there, it should also be said that, that um, s- some of the, the deaths and violence in the film are super explicit, like just, it, you know, and, and also, you know, in fast. Um, well, you know, the the film starts, and I think, I think the film could be quite fascinating just as a road movie about a touring punk band because The, the Ain't Right's, this band from, uh, Punk band from Virginia finds himself in the pacific uh, northwest and it 's been a, a long and terrible tour um, and The film begins with them uh, out of their their van out of gas uh, in the middle of a cornfield and um, you know in one of the in the first of many times when you when the film defies expectations, they go to siphon gas. From another car, which they which they've been doing the entire ride, and you think they're going to get nabbed, something's going to happen. But now they just fuel up the car and go, and that's that's the way this band, you know, it's making barely ten bucks a piece on door charges, is getting around. You know, they're just barely scraping by. But there's, I think, a telling moment thematically early on where they're being interviewed. Uh, by this, you know, punk kid who who kind of, he was a journalist, but he also kind of help, helped, you know, set up this gig for them. And, and he's a, he's asking uh, Anton Yelchin about why the band doesn't have any social media presence. And I, I think that that it, his answer, and, and, you know, and really just the film itself is about kind of going back to that feeling. Of being there, of of immediacy, of of being in the moment, you know, and, and you know, another sort of running gag in the film has to do with you know Desert Island albums, uh, and uh, you know, you got this group of punks, but but their Desert Island albums, when it comes down to it, are these pretty chart topping pop favorites. Are people like Madonna and
2: even uh, a Garfunkel? One of them sticks with the Misfits, so
1: one of them sticks with the Misfits. But but punk is not something that is really. Well bottled on a, on an album is, uh, that you would want to listen to over and over again. It is it is something that you go to, and it is an event that you go to, and you feel.
2: I think it's neat too that one of the few um, sort of stylistic flourish is that they do that slow motion shot of the crowd the band playing in the crowd enjoying it and and where the soundtrack kind of drops out and becomes sort of you know soundtrack music and not the actual s- song they're playing and it kind of captures this this moment of uh, of bonding between the band and the crowd even though as we'll soon find out uh, if we don't know already the band and the crowd don't have that much in common
0: well, I mean, and they start by uh, deliberately antagonizing them, mm-hmm. and which is a very punk thing to do. There's, there's that moment where Yelchin's character decides, you know, we're going to go on and the first thing we're going to do is just completely tick these people off. Like that's a very bold move and it's a very interesting character move because – He's doing it so deliberately. It's not a, a careless thing. It's not. He is not unaware of the situation, but he is making a conscious decision to kind of put them all in danger just to, to like to to stick by his ideals. Like, Which
2: specify that they, 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 at this point realizing they're playing for white supremacists, they decide to play the the Doug Kennedy song Nazi punks um, F word off
0: which you can barely understand the lyrics but you can see, you can feel the anger in the room like instantaneously.
2: Well, I think the crowd would know the song too. Oh yeah. sure. Yeah.
0: Sure. I mean there's that the 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 response is so instantaneous. Like mm. there's I, I mean it's almost like they're shaking hands hello. Like we know what we're doing, you know what we're doing. We're all very angry here. And it's it feels like a miracle when we when we like one song later everybody seems to be on the same page again. But one of the things about that kind of that introductory sequence mm-hmm. that you're talking about, it made me really dislike these characters They're Why? because they're <laughs> because of their attitude because they're thieves because they live by oh. thievery because they've got such attitudes towards each other. Hmm. And for me, oh, the moment you try moment... live in a van,
2: hmm? you try live in a van. <laughs> I for I, most... Well, I know I,
0: I think it's a beautiful thing. Because I think one of the things that the film did for me was bring me around so quickly on, like, desperately liking these people and wanting them to survive. That opening made me feel like this was kind of a a conventional slasher where you're going to see these, you know, annoying kids picked off one by one. Mm. It just seems to me that it's so – it happens so quickly that Jeremy Sonier, like, flips that script and puts you in these people's shoes and and makes them seem like a unit it it takes one act of horrific violence to suddenly make them a unit that cares about each other well
1: it also it also is it, it's also made a little bit easier by the fact that they're playing uh, for a bunch of white supremacists, I think then you can identify with them far more than the crowd they're playing with. But um, I mean, I, I you know, I guess we're gonna have to agree to disagree about how how I felt feel about the characters in the as the film opens. I was immediately taken with them and and wanted the, wanted the, their success and respected you know what they were trying to do, which which is so much against. The grain, the shunning of commercial, of any kind of commercial success, or even enough success to to earn them, you know, the money to get home. I mean, that's why they take this gig. This gig is available for them, you know, uh, is given to them out of pity, really, and they can get make a quick three hundred fifty bucks and maybe get uh, a third of the way through the country before having to siphon more gas again. But um, I I I appreciated their kind of old school punk values, Uh, and and I think that is such an animating factor of this film not just those characters but just the aesthetic of the film it is very much a a punk film at in, in spirit i think you see it in the way the film is cut too there's always you know it's it feels like there's so many moments in the film uh where an edit happens a couple of beats before you expect it to it's so tight and yet also kind of jagged and uh you know purposefully rough um it's it's impressive
0: and I mean Sonya has been very specific about the fact that like he was a young punk mm-hmm. that this is like going back to not just the the music of his youth like the music that he loved as like an angry 19-year-old but a scene that he was part of and a scene that he saw being taken over by skinheads and being taken over by, by violence he was part of the DC punk scene and there was a real skinhead problem and there was he as he puts it you know there was nightly violence between people who considered themselves straight edge and people who considered themselves skinheads who all were interested in the same music and the same scene but disagreed very fervently about the direction that scene should go. And you can feel that as like part of the not deeply explained but very present dynamic here, like from the moment that the, the Antwrites take the stage.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a familiar bad chemistry because, the, because there is the, this weird crossover between people from distant parts of of the ideological spectrum sharing space together
2: it's sort of interesting too that that he puts the two two people two elements that are not posers in any way imagine that you know in the scene he's talking about there's enough gray area. there's people that are just kind of playing the part of a of a a left-wing punk or playing the part of a, a skinhead but these these are actual white supremacists and these is a punk band that doesn't even have a social media presence in 20, 2015. You know, these are, these are the hard, the hardcore of, of, of both ends of, of the spectrum here.
0: Well, with the, the white supremacists in specific, there's, there's kind of the, the scenesters and then there are the red shoelace people. Right. And as the, the film progresses, you get the sense that uh, like uh, somebody actually says at one point, you know, that it, this is true believers. We've got true believers sure. here. And, As the film progresses, you see more and more of these people who are deeply in the scene, of course, led by Patrick Stewart's character, uh, Darcy, who he I mean, I remember two years ago when the news hit that Patrick Stewart was playing a white supremacist (laughs) in a horror film. And the the adulation, like the excitement of that concept, uh, it it was it was really fun to watch. Like people were really receptive to and excited by the idea.
2: He doesn't. Overplay it. It's not an arch performance. Mm-hmm. If anything, it's it's kind of an understated performance, and I think it's it's really effective that way too. But but uh, you know, it's not just John luc Picard barking, you know, <laughs> Nazi sentiments or whatever. But it's, it's not
1: it's, it's not not either. I mean, it's he's right. he's he's, ca- he's both cast way against type and to type, uh, because he is a you know a quiet controlled leader and authority of the way. figure. He's a authority figure. He he you know I, he gets. He has cause for frustration and 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 anger, I suppose, as the film uh, goes on. But his decision making throughout is pretty clear, uh, and his leadership is pretty clear. Though, you know, the one thing that I'm curious about too, I mean, is if we're, if we're talking about white supremacy is just how much that is window dressing really in, in the film. I mean, there's not... I mean, the symbols are everywhere, um, but but uh, the I- ideology is pr- kind of absent.
2: I think these are interesting films to look at together because of the politics of them, which are a little muted, but you can't really ignore them either. To start with Assault on Precinct 13, I mean, you have to, in some ways what's going on in that film may look a little more far fetched now than it did in the nineteen seventies when, you know, this is came out in seventy six. This is two years after the Patty Hearst kidnapping. You know, the SLA, the, the group that kidnapped her, would have been in the news anyway, which is sort of this band of urban terrorists with a a vague but insistent left wing agenda that was not afraid to commit violent acts to to, to do it. And like, you know, one they essentially part of the condition of holding her hostage was trying to get the the sort of wealth redistribution uh, programs in in, in place. Some of which they were actually effective in doing. I mean, there was sort of this real sense that, um, you know, especially coming out of the late sixties, you know, everything from, from the black Panthers to the weather underground, uh, the sense that armed bands of, 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 political extremists could, if not, if not affect lasting change in the American culture, at least destabilize it. And, and, we don't know what the gang members in this in this film want, but I think they very much read as urban revolutionaries and i, and I think you know it's almost cartoonish the 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 sort of the, like the we talked about the rainbow coalition of of uh, of gangs and that's where you have characters known only as the white warlord the black warlord um the, i think it's the, the oriental his, his, Warlord. Well, the, the, Oriental warlord <laughs> uh, and the Hispanic—I believe it's Hispanic warlord—but it's like you know we're not going to leave anyone out. But that being said, you know there were would have been representative groups for for most of those people. You know, fight, you know, in in the sort of the culture of urban terrorism that was going on at at the time. In some ways, I think Carpenter is not even entirely unsympathetic to that point of view because it does the film does open with that horrific scene of of faceless policemen gunning down gang associates unnecessarily. I mean, it is it is. You know, police violence, police brutality, uh, pretty well, I mean, clearly. Those
0: people are armed. Like, you really don't have a sense for what's going on.
2: True, but it is. I think it is sort of a shoot first, ask questions later uh, scenario as well uh, on the on the behalf of. The, yeah, of, it of feels of the like pl- an execution. Yeah, exactly. So you know, there is there is sort of a cycle of violence playing out between the sort of, uh, you know, extreme law and order enforcement and and the gangs in the street. Uh, and I think to it's not exactly window dressing, but you can't really ignore it, to, to, use, to use Scott's word, window dressing. I think there's a little bit of that in Green Room as well, because there's some interesting parallels, uh, as I kind of suggested before, between the... the Punks and and the white supremacists. Uh, they they are when you go to the apartment of the um, student journalist uh, that, that's interviewing them and and promoting their gig, which is not necessarily the the best use of journalistic ethics there. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, there's copious uh, postering and stickering, and and when you go to the the club, they end up in the, in the white supremacist club. It's almost like a parallel universe where there's a lot of posters and stickers too. They just happen to you know have like uh, awful white supremacist messages on them, but. There is, you know, it is. This is an American history act. I don't know if it's necessarily interested in plunging into to how people become white supremacists, but you know, I I think you know it, it's not an accident that they're white supremacists. I think what you do see of that culture is interesting, and I think the, the clash of 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 uh, philosophies is very much in play there too. There's also the assault and precinct thirteen dynamic playing out where they have to. Bond with the the white supremacist fan played by Imogene Poots, or I, I think she 's somewhat reluctantly along for the ride with with the white supremacist thing, but she did enter into it voluntarily to they had to bond with her to defeat a common enemy and and uh, so yeah I, I, I think the politics in here are muted, but they 're not you shouldn 't ignore them either.
0: No, I think that, I mean, uh, Jeremy Sonier and Macon Blair, who starred in Blue Ruin and- he's very good here, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's got a very small, a relatively small role, but it's very different from his Blue Ruin role, and he's really, really good. Um, the, he co-produced again, and he co-stars again, and he he does a lot of consulting with uh, Sonier, so you can consider his voice as part of this. They've talked about how they, the two of them, when Patrick Stewart came on board, um, he said, I want to. Backstory for my character. I don't want it in the film. I don't want to make any like speeches about what I believe or or, like why I believe it, but I want to know where the character's coming from. And they'd actually done a ton of research into the white supremacy movement in the United States. And they basically put together a backstory for him um, just for his perusal, just for him to understand the character based on a bunch of specific white supremacist leaders. And that's where they're, they're kind of coming from, is like from an informed place about the politics that leaves all of the politics off screen. Mm. And I think that's a really smart decision because by not putting out the can't out there, by not having anybody like giving big moral speeches about what they believe or why, it kind of takes away the audience thinking about any of those arguments and, and trying to analyze them Or trying to decide where they stand on them. In the end, what you have is a bunch of murderers trying to murder a bunch of people who don't want to be murdered. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot more relatable than if you became too detailed about the politics. And you see that in Assault on Precinct 13. Like regardless of where you stand on the rise of gangs or or white flight or like the progressive abandonment of areas of the city – you sympathize with people who don 't want to be murdered, and <laughs> if you lay out too much of the politics, suddenly you get into a, a death wish three kind of situation where it can seem really cartoony right. to use these elements to background such a like an exploitation film model. But I find it really interesting that Green Room in particular just kind of seems to use that all as a backdrop for letting you understand that these people are a certain kind of ruthless and that Darcy in particular is somebody who's come from a place where he expects to use violence as part of his politics. He expects to have people around him who do not flinch at violence as part of their politics. And that puts him in a situation where he can bring violence to bear when he has a situation that he thinks needs violence.
1: I really don't see the politics, I guess, of green room quite as strongly as I do assault on precinct 13. what I think is conceptually interesting about green room is that these two camps do, um, they're both, you know, they're outsiders and they both, they both do mingle in the same scene. Um, not just this specific situation where you, where this is, skinhead territory that, that the the punk, punks are sort of invading in a way or or, or being brought into the two but but uh you know the DC, the scene that sonier remembers from d c there were occasional skinhead elements and there was bits of violence you know he he, he i interviewed him and he was talking about talking about it. a situation where a club was shut down and he had uh, exited the club by walking through uh you know sp- spatters of blood and um this is kind of a a blown up graphic novelish version of of that um but it is fascinating to me that people do find some kind of a weird common ground i guess in aggression uh, even though, even though they come to it from completely different areas uh, ideologically, I mean that's that's kind of an interesting conflict to me. It's just sort of writ large in this film that. These groups that that come together in, under kind of normal circumstances and, and come together poorly under normal normal circumstances now they're now they're in the situation where where all of that conflict and intermingling and bad chemistry is just blows up.
0: Yeah, it seems like in green room, both the the punk group and the skinhead group are in the same kind of of place of being being young and frustrated and needing some way to work off that energy. And what, one of the things that makes Patrick Stewart's character so interesting, and Megan Blair's for that matter, is that they come into it as adults. And with Darcy, there's a feeling that it's Like, he's, he's not at the bar until he's called in because there's an incident. You know, he may have passed out of the place where he needs this kind of energy in his life on a daily basis. And now he's just profiting off of it. You know, it's a business for him. He still retains that potential for violence, that ability to violence, but he banks it until he needs it because he doesn't need to express it by moshing. He doesn't need to express it by, by playing punk music. He's like... He's an old punk. He's kind of retreated into his shell. And I feel like Assault on Precinct 13 comes from a very different dynamic as far as that's concerned, because none of the people in the the police station feel like they're particularly predisposed towards violence. They have to find the violence within them in order to survive, but they're fending off people who live in a culture of violence and who have, it seems, been placed into that culture of violence by the cycle of violence. I'm saying the word violence a lot. Keith, do you have any final thoughts on your topic before we throw to Scott and violence?
2: I think final thought is one that just occurred to me, is that, that one thing that both sides have in common is, is they are they are enthralled to and idealizing a scene that predates their birth by a couple of decades, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, the punks are... Uh, you know, hold up this sort of early eighties Washington DC punk scene as this, as this, this ideal. And, and, and it's not that different in terms of looking to the past for guidance as, as the, the neo-Nazis and the white supremacist group in, in some ways. And, and not, not I mean, obviously one is a much uh, more, I think humane philosophy uh, than the, than the other, but that is, they are both sort of, sort of um, you know, worshipful of the past and, 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 and in and some of the same ways,
0: oh, that's really interesting. You know what else they worship? Violence, violence. <laughs> Scott.
1: Okay. Well, you know, w- w- my topic is violence. You know, we talked in the first segment about the shooting of the little girl and assault on precinct thirteen being, you know, a si- signal that nothing was off the table. You know, Green Room does not have a single incident that's quite as shocking, but I think it's critical to the film's. Punk spirit that the violence be explicit and visceral, uh, and that brings it in line with uh, Saunier's last film, uh, *Blue Ruin*, which is a revenge film about an ordinary man trying to commit violence and the gruesome consequences of being an amateur at doing so. Um, you know, *Green Room* like *Assault on Precinct 13, or *Straw Dogs*, which is another massive influence emphasizes the physical struggle of trying to get out of a seemingly impossible situation you know the the ain't rights take t- heavy casualties going up a much going up against a much larger and better armed force and the and the violence underlines just what a difficult undertaking this is you know th- those machetes uh, that are prominent in the film. It, it feels almost kind of like chopping through forest brush. In Year the wrath of God. You know. I mean, we have to feel it. Um, and thematically too, it just it just it fits into this movie that's just about the experiential nature of punk. Um, and uh, and I, and I think that just any movie with a mosh pit uh should not be shy about uh getting a little physical. So yeah, it just feels like form and content really come together. Quite beautifully with green room, I think. You in and uh, uh, and also feel I feel like this is a theatrical experience. You know, I, you, we were uh, joking earlier about uh, how how well Genevieve uh, might uh, handle a film such as this, but. You know, the crowd that we saw it with was very excited and engaged and enthusiastic, and there was some clapping. And I think, I think on a fundamental level, it, it you know it has some sh- shocking moments of violence. Uh, Keith Keith was a little shaken by it, but it's mostly just uh, tense. And I think the sound was ugh, the <laughs> was, ugh, but it's, it was tense. It's it's a re- it's just a very well executed thriller just just it's a great piece of craftsmanship not just gore and and uh and guts it's got um a lot of lot of style and uh you know he's a really talented filmmaker
0: you were saying in the previous episodes of the show like your your next picture show recommendation was for a return to (laughs) to graphic violence
1: on-screen violence yes
0: graphic Mm on-screen violence as a as an artistic statement as opposed to withholding violence in order to to be thought of as arty. This film is very minimal with the on-screen violence. It's just very graphic on-screen violence when it's there. Did this fit your
1: bill? It did. It did. I mean, the film I was talking about, the previous show, was Eastern Promises. Uh, the David Cronenberg film and just David Cronenberg films in general are going to show you a lot of violence rather than do a lot of things off screen. And it is important. In that film, there's no guns at all in that in that movie. That is all all knives and, and all and fists and it you know it emphasized And the Revenant was that way too. If you want to go back even further, you know these movies really do try to. Communicate that physical struggle, and that's part of where where they draw draw attention. And that is that is that is what you have to go through in order to get to the other side. I mean, Straw Dogs is all about you know Dustin Hoffman becoming a man, basically, mm-hmm. uh, by and defending he, his turf, by defending his turf, and doing doing it through you know extraordinary you know gut wrenching. Violence, um, and uh, and so Green Room, Green Room, I think, follows in that tradition.
0: You know, you talk about the um, the violence in assault on Precinct Thirteen being more shocking to you. I, you know, the gunning down of the little girl to me is not as visceral. Maybe it's because I'm I'm the only one like currently talking on this podcast that does not have a <laughs>
1: daughter. Um well, it's something you don't see very often. I don't think to see see, you know, a, a perfectly innocent child getting gunned down in cold blood is even for a for a genre film like a uh, assault precinct 13 that's pretty rare.
0: Oh, it's it's very rare and it's certainly surprising and and horrifying. But it didn't hit me in the visceral place that green room did. And part of that I think is because it, you know, but just because of the effects, you know. Mm-hmm. There's there's something about that 70s uh, blood effect that looks exactly like house paint, you know, the the weird slick shiny super bright red. Sure. As much as Assault on, on Precinct 13 is built around these, like, sudden acts of of shocking violence, there's also just something a little of its era, like, a little cartoony to me. Whereas Green Room and Blue Ruin before it just feel very real to me. I think one of Sonier's like, real skills is making these people feel real mm-hmm. and making the violence feel real. He shoots violence in a way that feels like violence in real life does. If you've ever been around, you know, something horrifically violent happening, there is a bluntness and suddenness to it. And he's shooting things that could be interpreted as slasher movies if they played very differently, if they were written and and scripted and shot differently. You have just this series of people being mown down one by one, but he doesn't he doesn't linger on the kill shots, and he doesn't give you a, a sense that you should be going woohoo that was an amazing amazing murder. Like he makes these people so real, and he makes the violence feel so visceral. It's it's hard to know how to react except with that Ugh, kind of reaction.
2: Yeah, and Sony is really good at that. I mean, in Blue Rune as well, there's sort of the sense of how hard it is to kill somebody <laughs> or and mm. knock somebody out or how it's never clean or you know it's so rarely cl- clean or quick. I mean, in, in Greenwood, there's, there's all the scenes with the big tough bodyguard-looking wrestler-looking guy and um, you know subduing him and trying trying to uh, you know. Uh, keep him from doing anything, and it's hard. It's it's hard to take another person down, um, and it, you don't often see that in, in in films. And and I think in this, it it plays out in a way that's that's as she said, really uncomfortably close to, to what real-life violence is like.
1: Blue Ruin owe, owed quite a bit. Well, I think both films really owe quite a bit to the Coen brothers. Uh, Blue Ruin especially owes a lot to Blood Simple. Uh, and the Coens love that. That's something they return to constantly is our... our uh, people involved in in crimes who, who who are not used to to committing them or co- or being involved in violence who are who, who not do not commit violence and so it does have that messiness. It also has uh, a comic value too. I mean, Blue Ruin is as much a comedy as a, is a thriller. Um, you know, and uh, and I think there's there's certainly some comic relief to to green room as well, but you know I think it's it, it comes it's part of the tension of the film is 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 to understand that and identify with these people in all of their vulnerability and in, in humanity they're not uh you know doesn't the situation does not turn them into superhumans I mean and I guess maybe you could cite Die Hard as another as a similar type type of situation you know the first Die Hard what made made it so much better than the sequels is that we sense that um bruce willis's character uh was you know human and, and bled and you know he got he had cuts on his feet and you know and uh you got a sense of his physical struggle i think it's really important um to the tension of of, of the film that they be that relatable
0: one of the things that all these films have in common—Blue uh, Rowan, Green Room, Assault on Precinct Thirteen, and Die Hard—is the rarity of weapons, the the scramble to get your hands on a weapon, and mm-hmm. what a difference that makes. Having a gun and ammo in hand, you know, by the end of Prec- Precinct Thirteen, they're they're down to three bullets, and they've got to make one of those bullets count. And they're relying on jury-rigged weapons to uh, like to take out their enemies. Blue ruined uh, making Blair. <laughs> one of the more comic sequences is him struggling to get his hands on a gun and to make that gun usable. <laughs> and in Green Room, some horrible things happen around trying to get their hands on guns. Um, yeah,
1: well, I mean that, that's the first negotiation is they have is the punks have a gun. And, and they're not going to go any further in this negotiation until the Patrick Stewart, Dar- Darcy, ha- gets that gun from them. And uh, But
0: it makes violence so much harder and yeah. so much more visceral if the people don't have guns. And one of the, I, I mean, I could go on all night about the reasons that the Assault on Precinct 13 remake doesn't work. But one of the big ones is really early on, they, they let the criminals out and they say, here is our giant cache of weapons. And people start spraying automatic fire around, like for fun basically. I mean, they end up with gigantic stashes no. of, of weapons and ammo and it turns into a big happy gun party no. and it it makes it all very unreal.
1: It's terrible. I'm glad I glad I didn't see this thing. That's a that's a horrible <laughs> uh, horrible t- twist on the original uh which is which is about making the most of what little you have. But you know one thing I really like about about this film and again it speaks to the de- desperation of it is that um you know they ha- they're in this room and they have to get out of the club. That is the basic situation. They're stuck in this room and there's they're way outnumbered outside and they have to get out. That's the the conflict. And what I like about it is that they try a couple of different times and fail <laughs> to leave and have to retreat. And they retreat with with fewer than they than they came out with. I you know I, I like that of just being able to 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 of making an effort of being courageous of being as as industrious. Uh, as they possibly can in failing.
0: I mean, a part of that, I I kept thinking of Panic Room at various points during the film because of that same dynamic of we can leave, but if we stay out of the room too long, we're all going to die. So it just becomes about like, what can we gain while we're out? Mm -hmm. But one of the things that that I connected to most in Green Room and found most fascinating about it was Mark Webber's character. He's playing one of the punks, and he's the only one of them that seems to actually understand violence. Mm -hmm. He's not a, a hugely violent man, but he knows how to take control of somebody who's bigger than him and, and shut him down. He knows how to handle himself. He knows how to handle a gun and he changes the dynamic so thoroughly just by being almost as comfortable with violence as the people that are coming at them. He becomes almost more of a resource than the gun just because he's he knows how to actually fight back. And I found his character fascinating.
2: Yeah, for sure. It's, it's again, almost John Carpenter Hawksian, uh, like uh, like how little is spelled out of these characters, but how much we get to know them just, just through what they do. And like, you know, it's not like there's this awkward setup it's like, you used to wrestle in high school, didn't you? Like in the <laughs> early scene. But but you see him, you know, handling things in a in a way that someone who clearly knows what he's doing would that that, you know, you get to know that. it's 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 really it's nicely done. I, I I really got a sense of of who all these all these people were,
1: yeah, and 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 who the dogs were too. I was going to yeah. say it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty nuanced portrait of dogs. Yeah, yeah. we
0: really couldn't uh, leave violence without seeing how the the dog violence sat with Keith, who was our resident deep seated dog lover.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, nothing, take nothing away from Scott or Genevieve, who who are also fond of dogs. But I I'm, I'm sort of on record as not doing well with dog violence. But there's sort of this. This snarling, you know, dog that's going to kill you thing—the element that kind of shuts off that part of my brain. Uh, you know, I don't want to see the dogs hurt, but but the the dogs in this are um, um, are such a threat that my recoiling at, at violence toward dogs kind of uh, is a. Uh, is off the table with this one but then but then I know you get it, a little yeah. dog redemption you get a little dog redemption it's so, yeah. it's so sweet it is you're like oh this is just a dog yeah it's, it's nicely No, it's, it's very nicely very done very nice
0: and it's part of what Sonia seems to be saying about the cycle of violence and how violence begets violence and if you can like let go of it just briefly mm-hmm. I mean there's that sense that these dogs are being forced towards they've been trained towards violence they've been forced towards violence once the person who's like exacerbating the situation Situation is gone suddenly it's just a dog
2: yeah that's nicely uh, set up in uh, and so and 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 the parallel between uh, the dogs and and uh, the people in under the thrall of of uh, darcy and others is is uh, not they don't put too fine a point on it but it's not hard to not hard to see
1: uh well one of the things i appreciated about about the film and i think this maybe speaks to your topic tasha is how well it's structured and how how it sets certain things up and and Calls back just things that it did before. I think you you expect certain things to happen and they don't. I mean, it's a it's a sophisticated piece of writing. Oh
0: yeah, and I mean, one of the things that struck me most about it, I just kind of wanted to talk about the callbacks in both films because both films kind of operate on this cycle of repeated references. In Assault on Precinct Thirteen, it's Napoleon constantly asking, "Got a smoke? Got a smoke? Got a mm-hmm. smoke?" And then once he gets a smoke, you're kind of like ah, we can be done with that. Like, that's fine. And then like five minutes later, he's like, gotta smoke. (laughs) And it becomes this this running punchline. But so does people asking him about his name and his refusal to discuss it. There's just this, this kind of sense of, of build up and and payoff build up and payoff that goes throughout and that by the end has become this comfortable in joke that that binds the characters together. Mm-hmm. In Green Room it's the same thing like in a dark way there's sort of the the constant threat of the dogs and how that ends up being paid off at the end but in a lighter way there's the whole business with the uh the desert island yes. bands which at the end of the movie oh becomes God. a punchline.
1: Like the, ba- the best possible po- I think I can- <laughs> Not that is like Casablanca level great last lines for me that I love the way that is paid off
0: and it's just it's a it's a really realistic acknowledgement of like what they've been through and what all of this means at this point so i like I don't have a huge point to make i I just think it's interesting how both movies kind of insert the running gag even in moments of tension in order to pay it off at the end and release that tension. You know, it's kind of a beginning to end. Both of them have these in-jokes that start before the the violence and the, and the tension start, are referenced during the height of the tension, and then come back at the end as kind of a, hey, remember who we all were like an hour and a half ago before things were terrible? Mm-hmm. Um, and both of them just end up being a... At both a reminder of those earlier times and then just kind of a release in a way that I found really interesting.
1: Another thing I think that I liked about the film too is that it, it really plays with what you're trained to think is going to happen. A couple of, couple of examples. One is that they, they do find a secret room under the green room, right? Uh, I mean, there is an escape hatch, but the hatch is locked, so they're screwed. So that happens. And then, and then there's another moment where, you know, one of the punks is, is very hurt, uh, but not dead. Is bleeding out, and, uh, and the order is not to kill this person, but to just let them bleed out. And so, and so, as an audience member, you're in, you're, you're thinking, "Aha! This character is going to come back later," and it doesn't happen. <laughs> um, that character has presumably uh, passed away. Um, so you know, it's the these are the small touches, but um, I do like that the film, uh, you know, is conscious of what an audience what someone in the audience is going to expect and then just subverts those expectations in really small uh, but effective ways.
0: And it doesn't comment on the fact that it subverted them, especially with the the wounded punk who doesn't come back. Like, that was a huge... A shock for me that it that that didn't happen but nothing is said about it because nobody's really aware of it and that in in and of itself makes his death more tragic i mean it's almost like sunye subverting the whole idea of you know the kill shot the death scene the like the big moment he dies somewhere quietly off screen and nobody knows exactly when or exactly how it happened and to me that makes it even more of a tragedy
2: he doesn't come back, you know, coughing up blood and going, yeah, F Hitler. Bang, <laughs> bang. You know, no. uh, That's
0: what that movie needed at the end instead of the punchline that we get.
2: To see this movie is to see what other movies do wrong you know it's it, it's it's a nice example of of uh let's uh, let's let's shave off every possible cliche we have and let's see what's left and, and and it's quite striking this film
0: i don't think there's anything more to be said about that then assault on precinct 13 is available on dvd blu-ray and on streaming services green room is currently in theaters and we hope that you will see it there because it really packs a punch in a dark theater and we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment your next picture show Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, you want to kick us off?
2: Yeah, sure, absolutely. Uh, This one kind of spins directly out of what we were talking about, and I already referenced it earlier, which is uh, Only Angels Have Wings, a Howard Hawks film from 1939. Uh, It just came out on Criterion in a new Blu-ray edition. And what's what's interesting about this film is, is, is I don't know that it's necessarily like the f- first or even the fifth film that comes to mind when people think of Howard Hawks but is the most Howard Hawks films there <laughs> there is i mean it is it is such a such a you know characters hanging out together uh you know makeshift family forming around a common goal and in this case it's it's delivering the mail in south america under very dangerous conditions um you know and wonderfully drawn characters uh you know played by the lead is, is is Cary grant uh, as the pilot and and head of the other pilots, and and, and Jean Arthur as a is a, a chorus girl that 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 kind of steps off in his uh, the fictional South American port city where his uh, operation is based, and uh, decides to stick around because she's kind of uh, she falls for him, and also kind of falls for for the whole situation. You know, it's 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 funny and it's tense and it's filled with these characters who. Have kind of developed an attitude toward life that doesn't so much scoff at death, but kind of learns to live with it. And it is from top to bottom, just a wonderfully cast. I mean, it's Cary Grant, it's Gene Arthur, you don't get much better than that. Uh, it's one of the breakthrough films for Rita Hayworth. Uh, it's got Thomas Mitchell, who uh, uh, you'll know from It's a Wonderful Life and many other movies, you know, on down to like Noah Beery Jr. deep in the credits. Uh, um, it, is, it is a delight. And it, it, is, it is, while it's not the most direct influence on uh, Salton in Precinct 13 and, and Green Room, Room, uh, to, it is uh, the DNA uh, for for especially you know assault. Uh, it can be traced back to this to this film and Howard Hawks in general. And and if you've only seen the best known Howard Hawks films, um, go a little deeper. This is a this is one of the best, if not the best known.
0: I remember it is just really feeling innovative in terms of of character and relationships. It's pre code, isn't it?
2: No, it's not pre code, but it's it certainly is. It is clear. Um, that Cary Grant is someone who's kind of slept his way through Central America uh, and the and the Caribbean, and that Gene Arthur has uh, has been around as well, and and it's uh, it skirts the code uh, very uh, uh, very in some very interesting ways.
0: Yeah, mostly I just uh, one of the things that hit home for me most about that film was a a sense of a very particular scene that mm-hmm. we don't see much of in cinema, and a sense of very particular relationships that feel very true to life and not very true to cinematic romance and kind of the the cliches of that I just I remember it as feeling really unusual and distinctive in a really pleasing way
2: in some ways it has it has some parallels to Casablanca too where it's, there's this far-flung location and people from from different parts of the world thrown together who wouldn't normally necessarily be rubbing shoulders and how they interact with each other and and it's also it's filled with with colorful characters uh it's yeah it's 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 a good one touch what about you what have you what do you had to recommend for us
0: you know I also kind of went with the inspired by this particular conversation recommendation. Um, back when we were at The Dissolve, a little film called The Guest came out. And... <laughs> Uh, The little happy noises coming off, Genevieve, make me happy. Um, Directed by Adam Wingard, written by Simon Barrett, starring Dan Stevens from Downton Abbey. We all really liked this film. And it was kind of the last film that I think I felt about exactly the way I feel about Green Room. as it just being like full of surprises and full of innovations, but also very consciously an 80s throwback. Like referencing these old films, referencing films in a Carpenterian kind of way um and yet it like where i think green room is going to do at least reasonably well because word of mouth i'm just so strong the guest kind of sunk a little and it was really it was really saddening because it's such a it's such a small movie in some ways but it's centered on such a memorable and distinctive performance and it's it's full of surprises. It's full of memorable and distinctive surprises. It's also a film very much made for cinephiles and very much made for people who are familiar with, you know, Carpenter's oeuvre and kind of the, the exploitation slash uh, fun violence films of the, the late seventies and early eighties. It's streaming on Netflix now. So it's really, really easy to access. Um, And I just, I, I have to throw in that I did an interview with Wingard Barrett and Stevens back in the day at the dissolve, and it was one of my favorite things that I ever did for the site. I just I really enjoyed talking to those guys. They were really smart about what they were trying to do in terms of balancing tone and content and referencing all of these classics of eighties cinema um, in a really fun way. So I hope that now it's on, now that it's on Netflix, people will people who didn't find it in the day will go back and find it.
1: Yeah, it's so good. I, I saw I, we saw it together, ta- Tasha, and I remember leaving... The theater and thinking, I love this movie. I'm so worried <laughs> I'm going to get into a row with Tasha over it. And uh, I was very relieved and happy that you uh, that we were kind of on the same page. As thinking that it was, uh, uh, you know, terrific fun. Yeah, another ter- uh, wonderful homage to to Carpenter. I mean, everyone owes something to Carpenter. I just wish kind of I wish I just wish one of those retro Carpenter films would take off. It really hasn't. Oh happened yet. yeah,
0: I know. Well, when I was reading that uh, the Entertainment Weekly piece listing off all I mean, of I guess the...
1: the purge was okay but i mean come on
0: yeah i mean the purge is kind of the cheap one um but all of those films that that article referenced it was the purge the guest and like four films Cold i've July, stage
2: fright almost, almost human yeah, yeah.
0: and apart from the guest and uh the purge i haven't seen any of those movies i I'd barely heard of any of them so, I don't know. Am I missing some Cold uh, July. gems in there?
1: you think you're missing Cold in July. I, saw st- I I didn't think much of Stage Fright or Almost Human, but... Uh...
0: So, you're right, Scott. It is fairly unusual for the two of us to be so thoroughly on the same page, yeah. particularly about a, an exploitation-tinged movie with a lot of violence. Mm-hmm. We tend to come to those from very different yeah, angles.
1: In Green Room is the same Exactly. So, 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 Green when Room the, when and the guest, you, man. Know, you know when we are together on these things that this is... Uh, Powerful stuff.
0: Speaking of things we could be together on, what's uh, what do you have for well, us?
1: I have a movie that you can't see right now, but I wanted to bring it up anyway. It's called Starless Dreams. Uh, it's my favorite movie out of the True False Film Festival. It's the best film I've ever reviewed for Variety. And this week, it both won the Full Frame Documentary Festival, which is a pretty big deal, and it picked up a distributor uh, in the U.S., uh, in Cinema Guild, uh, which, w- which should be releasing it uh, later this year. And it's an Iranian documentary by a director named uh, Mirdad um, who's now made three films about kids in juvenile detention facilities. His f- previous two films were about boys. Starless Dreams is about girls. Uh, and what's remarkable about this film, and I think this is true of Iranian cinema in general, is its simplicity. Uh, Oskway, uh turns his camera on girls who have known nothing but poverty, abuse, and oppression their whole lives, and you get the sense that they're just being listened to for the first time, and it's such such a direct and extraordinarily powerful experience on its own, just to hear those stories. But then on top of that, he gives you a sense of this um, detention facility as a place where these girls can be kids and can can bond and have friendships and play um, and do um, be have some innocence restored. Um, you know, and and it kind of, the film almost turns really on this irony that, that, um, they become so close um, that they don't want to leave. <laughs> they don't want to leave, you know, this room. Basically, they they're, they 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 go out for recess occasionally, but they're all just in this room together, and that's a better situation for them than than uh, than you know getting picked up uh, by their families uh, who are going to return them to a life of of abuse and in drugs and all sorts of other things. But um, uh, it is really extraordinary it's quite short too you won't you won't have to spend too much time uh watching it it's like 75 minutes long um and it should be coming out in theaters i think later this year but it is a special film and it's something to keep in mind
0: that sounds fascinating what's the title again
1: starless dreams
0: well we will certainly be looking for that when it comes out uh in the meantime you can (laughs) you can watch the films that you can actually watch Uh,
1: just you know we're a a culture of anticipation tasha this is like this is like star wars kind of uh, it is exactly like Star for an Wars. documentary.
0: I'm going to start writing my fanfic for Starless Dreams right now. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out Hey guys, producer Genevieve butting in from another space and time to let you know that due to some boring behind-the-scenes administrative stuff, there will be an extra week between this and our next episodes, which will now drop May 17th and 19th. We don't have our pairing for that show selected yet, but if you keep an eye on our Twitter and Facebook pages, we'll announce it there as soon as we know. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Assault on Precinct 13, Green Room, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero 234 9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith?
2: You can find me at uprocks.com. I'm, I'm uh, writing there and working behind the scenes. And you can also find me at Twitter at kfips 3000
1: Um, you can find me on twitter at at scott underscore tobias Uh, i'm currently writing for npr variety new york times washington post rolling stone vulture village voice and uh, as of the beginning of may i will be the editor-in-chief of oscilloscopes musings uh so uh look for some uh, you know exciting film essays there every week
0: You can find me at TheVerge.com, where I'm the resident film critic. We're uh, taping this one a little early because I'm about to head off to the Tribeca Film Festival for two weeks. So you can drop in and uh, see a lot of me talking about Tribeca films there. You can also find my interview with Adam Wingard, Simon Barrett, and Dan Stevens at The Dissolve. Scott, where did you uh, interview Jeremy Sonier for?
1: Washington Post.
0: And I interviewed him for The Verge, so there's a lot of us talking to a guy we admire out there. And finally, you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can find producer Genevieve Kosky on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show via Twitter at Next Picture Pod via Facebook at facebook.com slash show or by visiting nextpictureshow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast you use, and think about rating and reviewing us on your favorite service. Positive ratings and reviews help move podcasts up the charts to more visible spaces, and every thumbs up literally helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. If you're enjoying what we do, we appreciate it if you could give us a shout-out on your social media outlet of choice. Thanks again to Genevieve for producing the show with assistance from Colin the Animal Griffith. And thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. And finally, we'd like to thank our parent podcast, Film Spotting, for all their help, input, and support. Please tune in next time.